0: I read a wee article during the week um, which said, sort of give the warning uh, never marry a football fan. And uh, it said that because of, it said because the beautiful game doesn't always lead to a beautiful name. And the reason for that was because it, it told a couple of stories. One was in 1966, uh, a Liverpool football fan. Uh, whenever his newborn arrived, went unbeknownst to his wife to register the name of the little girl. And uh, he was such an avid fan of Liverpool Football Club, he had won the FA Cup in 1965, and avid football Liverpool fans may well know that. Um, He named the child after not only the 11 players on the field, but also the two assistants and the manager. I can see some football fans nodding their heads, thinking, "Now there's an idea." So, but th- think of the young girl, or think of perhaps the school teacher who who reads out the, the register and says, "Paula, St. John, Lawrence, Lawther, Bern, Strong, Yates, Stevenson, Callahan, Hunt, Millen, Smith, Thompson, Shankly, Bennett, Paisley, O'Sullivan," and she says, "Present." The mother wasn't best pleased when she got out of hospital. But I, I felt as much for the, the more recent mom in the last number of years who whenever their firstborn daughter was born, the mom was delighted when she discovered that the husband had already decided upon the name. And she said it was such a unique and romantic name. She said, that was wonderful, the, the name Lanesra. And uh, he he'd just he'd coined this name. And she was so made up by the fact that he had really just taken time to, to think of this unique and romantic name until two years in, whenever he admitted that it was Arsenal spelt backwards. <laughs> so uh, be careful if you marry a football supporter. The, imagine day if someone named their child after a place where there was a significant loss of life. Imagine if someone named their child Hiroshima or Psalm. I'm not aware of anyone doing that. But Hosea the prophet named his first child Jezreel because of the massacre that had happened at Jezreel. And why did he do that? Because the Lord told him to do it. His second and third children, or not his second and third children, because as I explained the fact there was a second and third child, but neither were actually his. But he named the second one Lu Ruama, which means not loved. And the third child was named Lu Amai, which means not my people. If you don't like your name, think of Lu Ruma, which means not loved. And why did Hosea call his children with such names? Well, because God told him to in each instance, but also the second child and the third child were not his. Because Hosea's life was all, it was a prophetic symbol about how God loves his people. And so not only did God speak to, Isaiah, to Hosea in terms of, revealing to him on an intellectual level what it was like to be God and to be betrothed to the people of Israel. God wanted Hosea to feel in his heart and in his gut what it was like to be God relating to the people of Israel. And so we read at the very start of uh, Hosea's book, which is mostly poetry and a collection of over sort of 25 years of his poetry and uh, probably his declarations as well. And uh, Hosea 1-2 says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, This land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So that son was the one that was called Jezreel, named after the massacre. Imagine God saying, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a promiscuous woman. I know in the the new covenant, God speaks to us in a a new way in that he calls us uh, particularly, you know, to be as Christians, to marry Christians. Um, But in this stage of Israelite history, it's really, it's startling that God tells the man Hosea to do this. So that Hosea's not just words, but actually his life enacts what it's like for God to relate to his people. So Gomer then has a number of children that are not actually Hosea's. It's it's very subtle in the first couple of chapters, but you can see that, you know, it's the case of Jezreel was his son and then it says and then there were the the, the children. It very subtly tells us that that Hosea that the other two children were not actually Hosea's that they came about because Gomer had a number of affairs with other men even though Hosea was completely devoted to her and this is you know this is how God through the holy man Hosea Uh, relates to Gomer. He he relates, and I'm sure that this enactment is one that, that has not only an impact on the people of Israel, but actually has an impact on a woman called Gomer. Because Hosea is utterly faithful to her, and he is utterly devoted to her. And the pain of his life is expressed in numerous places, but in Hosea chapter 2, in the midst of poetry, Hosea tells about the pain of being married to a woman who is sleeping with other men. And one of the things he says is, in his frustration and his outrage and his disgust, I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. And then comes chapter 3. That um, I just want to read a few verses from here. Hosea 3 verse 1 says this. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they Turn to other gods and, and love the sacred raisin cakes, cakes, reference to a religious rite. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me for many days, but you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you." The number of things that we we learn through the prophet Hosea, which we learn through a number of the prophets, but something that we learn powerfully through Hosea is that God is a gracious God who has betrothed Himself to sinful people. So the first thing that God wants to say to us through the book of Hosea and through the whole life of Hosea is this: that God has chosen to betroth himself to us despite the fact that we are sinful people. He hasn't, he hasn't betrothed himself to the Israelites. He hasn't betrothed himself to us because of anything good within ourselves, but because God is good and he's decided that he's going to do it. The second thing that we learn through Hosea is that God is a holy God. There are 17 prophetic books in the Bible and they have two themes running through them interwoven, judgment and hope. Now that 17 books, is a lot of books in the Bible that have those two themes, judgment and hope. And they're woven together and they always come together because judgment leads to hope. The reason for judgment is to bring new beginnings. The reason why God brings about justice is to give new starts. And so these twin themes both depend on God's covenant promises to his people. We've looked at the last number of weeks about God's covenant to his people. The fact that when God created uh, creation itself, including ourselves, when he breathed it all into being, the kingdom of God, we saw the pattern of the kingdom of God, the garden of Eden. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. The place, Eden. God's people, Adam and Eve. God's perfect rule, Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the cool of the day, been able to talk to God face to face. Just a beautiful picture of harmony. And then, boom, the fall. Adam and Eve thumb thumb their noses up at God and say, we're going to do it our own way. And everything just comes crashing down. The kingdom, boom, disappears. And Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. And every one of us, every single human being since, is born into a place where death death is automatic. Death is automatic. Death is automatic. And we are born into sin. We're just born into the reality of a broken world and we're part of it. And then God in his grace, because he's a good God all the time, he comes to a nomad in the middle of nowhere called Abram and he says to Abram, not because Abraham's a good man, but because Abram is the man that God has chosen. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Abram doesn't have any land. Abram doesn't have any children. And Abram says, okay, God, I believe what you're saying. And God said, boom. I've credited to you as righteousness. You're right in my sight because you believe that this is all down to the goodness of God. And then from that comes, as Johnny took us through a thousand years of Israelite history, brave man, woo, whistle-stop tour, a thousand years last week. And we saw... Coming out of Egypt, the people of God, 10 commandments, the laws of God at Mount Sinai, conquering in its most, mainly, uh, the, the, the promised land of Cana. Then come the kings and Saul and David and Solomon. and There's this building up of the kingdom of God, an expression of the kingdom of God, But it's it's becoming clear as people see the cracks that uh, this isn't going to be the perfect kingdom of God. It's an expression of the kingdom of God. It's a partial representation of the kingdom of God. And then, with Solomon's life, towards the end of Solomon's life, it all just starts to fall apart, and and the cracks start to get bigger. Not least because Solomon and his wealth and richness has has married hundreds and hundreds of women who come from different places with their different and, and there's this diluting of the one true faith. And Solomon embraces it all. And so there's chaos. And the nation is split in two Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the kings that come, by and large, turn their back on God. And God, over a number of hundred years, sends prophets. He sends people to warn the people of Israel, to warn his wife, and to pull her back from the edge. And again and again, the prophets come. Uh, there's the prophets that we call the major prophets, like uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. They're called the major prophets because, just because their books are longer. There's the minor prophets. Their books are shorter, but their books are no less significant. And Hosea, whose book is shorter, a minor prophet, lived in the 8th century, the kingdom of Israel, during the 8th century. And what he does by his life, by his marriage, by the names he gives his children, by what he says, by the poetry that he writes, by the way he challenges the political systems and says, don't make don't make foolish alliances with the superpowers because the, the politicians were making alliances with Assyria and, and Egypt in an attempt to try and have some better defense. And Hosea is saying, don't rely on a superpower for your defense, rely on the one true God. It sounds very familiar today, doesn't it, in terms of nations saying, who can we get into bed with who will protect us and give us a good economy? Hosea says, don't don't trust superpowers. Trust the one true God. And Hosea was also saying uh, in the midst of his writing and his speaking, God is a holy God. He's given us a good holy law. We should abide by it. But his major criticism, his major prophecy concerns the worship of the people of Israel who, having moved into the land, Then start to confuse the Canaanite God Baal with Jehovah, Yahweh, the one true God. And so Baal, who's this Canaanite nature fertility god, people start to say, Well, I could have a a bit of worship like that, and I can have a bit of worship in terms of what Moses has laid down to us. And, And the Baal worship involved, it involved going to see the shrines of Baal. The name Baal means master. He was a hard taskmaster. So you went to worship Baal at a shrine and there were prostitutes employed at the shrine and your worship to God would include having sex with one of the prostitutes as an expression of your worship to God and as a prayer that God would make the land fertile and make you fertile. And not surprisingly, Hosea says, you are getting into bed with the devil. He doesn't actually say that, but basically he's saying, you are being promiscuous towards God. It's all going to end in tears. And in 722 BC, it all ended in tears. And Assyria that Israel had made a political alliance with sweep in, and they destroy the whole place. And they take all the people into exile. And the way the Assyrians worked was to disorientate all the people they conquered. And so the Assyrians came in And they conquered Israel and they took all the people and they planted them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away in another place. And they took people from another part of the Assyrian Empire and they brought those people and they settled them in the town of Israel, in the towns of Israel. And why did they do that? Because they wanted to disorientate everyone they conquered. So the covenant that God has with his people has two parts to it. There's, there's an unconditional part and there's a conditional part. And the conditional part, as God said to Moses, is this, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you obey my laws, you will live long in the land. You will live under my rule, under my blessing, and you will flourish. If you don't, I will take care of the land and you will be disinherited of the land and you will be destroyed. That's the conditional part of God's covenant. And and we see it. We see it in 722 when finally, after hundreds of years of warning, after Isaiah living a life which is a prophetic symbol to everybody and trying to warn everybody with every breath that he had, even in the midst of his relationships, even in the midst of what he called his children, but the fact was the nation just thumbed their nose up at him and they mocked him. But the trouble was in mocking Hosea, they were mocking God and God will not be mocked. And so in 722, the place was destroyed, and the people were taken hundreds and thousands of miles away and resettled somewhere else. The conditional, unconditional part of the covenant it's like in Genesis 12, whenever God speaks to Abram and he says, and he doesn't say anything Abram has to do in terms of the law or anything else. He just says to Abram, I'm going to make you as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You see, the word and the life of the prophets was all about the covenant of God, the kingdom of God. And the judgment part was all about the fact that Well, the whole thing is about that God always keeps his word. And so when God said, if you don't walk with me and obey me, then you will live a life of suffering. And through his word, God eventually, after trying to pull them back from the edge and pull them back from the edge and pull them back from the edge, eventually God lets them go. But the unconditional part of the covenant is, th- is this. That's never the end of the story. Because no matter how sinful human beings are, God has said, I will make your inheritance people who are as numerous as the sand in the seashore. These are the things that God has told us, taught us through the prophets and through Hosea. First of all, that God is a gracious God who betroths himself to sinful people like you and me. It's an amazing thing. The second thing is that God is a holy God, and He will not tolerate sin. And he's a just God. He will always make sure that sin is punished. No sin. Of any human being will ever go unpunished. And the last thing is God keeps his word and so his promise to his people will be fulfilled. As a church, I believe God has been speaking to us over these last weeks and months. It's interesting in terms of whenever John the Apostle writes down his revelation from God that the revelation in its first instance is addressed towards the seven churches in the province of Asia. The, the prophetic book of the revelation of St. John is, is primarily towards churches, which obviously are made up of individuals, but there is towards seven churches. And over the years, the Lord has also been speaking to us as his people, as a church. I remember one instance, uh, going back probably uh, maybe 10 years ago, whenever we were in a parish weekend down in Newcastle, and, and one of the ladies there, uh, Val, uh, who's passed away to be with the Lord, uh, came to me after, she was out for a walk, um, and said, I had this really vivid picture in my mind and it just won't go away it's this vivid picture of a man who is has been lying on the sand on the seashore and as he as he gets up the heat of the sun is is boiling and it's so bright that he he, is struggling to open his eyes she said that's the picture I have but I, I don't know what it means But as as she was speaking, even before she finished speaking, God was speaking to me, and he was saying, Bangor Parish is like Jonah lying on the shore after being spat up from the dark belly of the whale. And the Lord said to me, I'm giving you a second chance. I believe the journey that we've been on over these years, the journey of the fire happening in this place, is a journey where God wants to bless this town and bless this nation and bless the world. And for that reason, he has brought judgment upon us. So here's the thing about being a follower of Jesus Christ. You know the way we've been saying over the course of the last couple of years, bring it on, Lord, bring it on, bring it on. We've been saying effectively, as in the words of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. What have we been saying? We've been saying, bring judgment now. God, bring judgment now. You see, in being Christians, what we're saying to God is, God, I don't want to wait. Now, why on earth, we might think, why on earth do we want that now? And the reason is because of this meal that we're going to have today is because you and I are people of the new covenant. Jesus, speaking to his disciples the night before he died, he holds the cup and he says, this is my covenant in my blood, the new covenant which is poured out for many. What Jesus was saying was this, here's the new deal, here's the new covenant, and like the one to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, It it depends completely on the goodness of God. We can offer nothing to the deal. There is nothing we can offer to the deal. God's deal is this. I have done it all. It is finished. Will you accept what I've done? And amazingly, all we have to do is say, Lord, bring it on. Jesus has been, Jesus has stood in our place. Jesus has taken the just punishment of sin, our sin, upon himself. And so at the cross, this great transaction happens where the guilty go free and the free becomes the guilty. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what is blocking out Jesus from the Father in in that moment? It's your sin and my sin. The great transaction has taken place on the cross. And today we remember it in the presence of the risen one, Jesus Christ, his blood poured out and his body broken. And amazingly, and it seems too good to be true, all we have to do is say, Lord, I accept everything that you've done for me in Jesus Christ. And I'm amazed by the fact that you have betrothed yourself to a sinful person. And we would say, Lord, I wouldn't do it, but you have done it. And so it doesn't depend on anything we've done. It doesn't depend on anything we're doing or anything we will do. When we say, Jesus, I accept everything that you've done for me, it's like the Lord takes a, a mop and bucket to our lives in the blood of Jesus Christ and makes us clean. I've mentioned over these last months and sometimes years the sense of God wanting to sweep the streets of Bangor and he wants to use up to us to do it. Over the last really couple of weeks, the Lord has been saying to me, Nigel, it's not a brush we need. It's a mop and a bucket that we need. The filth in this town cannot be dealt with with a brush And more soberingly than that, he's saying to me, and Nigel, the sin in your life cannot be dealt with with a brush, nor can it be dealt with as a family of God in Bangor Parish with a brush, because what's actually required is a mop and a bucket. It's sobering. But what I've discovered over the years is this. God's justice brings new beginnings. Why does God discipline his children? Because he loves them. Tells us that in Proverbs and in Hebrews. The reason why God disciplines us is because he loves us. And not only because he loves us, he loves everybody else out there. And so as we've been seeking and praying to, to reach out and to bless and to bring Christ in our workplaces and neighborhoods and everything else and then effectively to mop up this town, God is saying to us, I believe today I'm going to start with you. Because if I'm to make a holy world, I need a holy people through Him to do it. So, if you're you're someone who's married, if you're a married man, and you're thinking about or are in or fantasizing about having an affair with someone, my word to you today is this, justice is coming in your life. If you're a woman and you're considering or fantasizing about having an adulterous affair, justice is coming in your life. If you're evading tax if you're living a life of greed rather than generosity, justice is coming in your life. If you're ignoring what God is calling to do, if you're living a life which is half-hearted towards Jesus Christ, justice is coming in your life. And why? Because God loves you because the Father loves you and because you and I have invited the judge into our lives. Every time we say, come, Holy Spirit, we're saying, come, Lord, and judge me. Come and bring justice in my life. If there's anything wrong with the way I speak or what I say or how I conduct my relationships or my finances, if there's any wrong in me, come and search me out. And we know that every time he'll find something because there's so much to find. And he'll take what's the wrong way up and he will turn it the right way up. And believe me, I know it's a painful process. But why does the Lord do it? Because he loves us. So today as we come for communion and we're saying, we're saying effectively, Lord, bring it on. Paul warns in the New Testament, don't treat this thing lightly. Don't eat the bread and drink the wine and think that that's not going to have any impact on your life. What Paul says is, you're saying to God in that instance, you're saying to the holy God, the God who judged Judah, the God who judged northern Israel, the God who judges everybody, we are saying, Lord, I have no fear of the last judgment. And the reason I have no fear of the last judgment is because my name is written in the book of life. And I have no fear of the last judgment because I've already met the judge. In fact, I have invited the judge into my life and his name is Jesus Christ. And I will stand with everyone else on the last day and I will stand and give an account for everything I've done. But here's the thing. My name is written in the book of life because I trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and he already lives in me. And so when I stand and look, I will recognize the one before whom I stand because he's been living in me and living with me all these years. This morning in the midst of communion, we say, Lord, bring it on. But I say to you, if the Holy Spirit's been nudging you that some aspect of your life is sinful, Don't mess around with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is a God of justice and he will see justice done because the Lord disciplines his children as a father, the children he loves. And God loves us deeply, so, so deeply. He's betrothed himself to us He's bonded himself to us with an everlasting love. Let's stand together.